0: Welcome to Women on the Line, one of Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs programs, produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Hope Matumbu. Women on the Line acknowledges this program is produced and presented on the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge Elders past, present and becoming, as well as the owners of the land you are hearing us from. The space, I think, when we
1: created this space, we had people in mind. We didn't create it. It was half functionality for me in the kitchen, but it was also like, well, how can we make this place, like, warm and inviting? Um, yeah, and so our end goal, one of our end goals is to just create these dinner parties where we put all the tables together and... We invite random people, um, and you get to meet people, you get to eat, you get, it's, I don't know. Mm. Communal eating the best, it's so fun.
0: Something's cooking! is more than sustenance and nutrition. It has social, cultural and symbolic meanings which structure not only our daily lives but also life transitions. Food represents an arena where powerful values and beliefs about being a human being are evident. Food practices also demarcate cultural boundaries of belonging and not belonging. These are the words of writer and researcher Dr. Ruth De Souza. In today's show, we chat with Cindy, owner of Shop Bao Nhiok, a recently opened Vietnamese-Australian tuck shop in Melbourne. We also speak with Saba Alameo, owner of Saba's Ethiopian restaurant in Melbourne. I open the show with sounds from our first guest, Cindy's kitchen. Let's hear the rest of her story.
1: My name's Cindy and I'm the owner of Shop Bao Ngop. The idea of Shop Bao Ngop came... Uh, maybe two years ago, when I started dipping my toes and into Vietnamese food. Growing up, my mum always made me sit on the kitchen bench and just watch her cook, while all my other family members got to go out and play. And yeah, over the last few years, I kind of just fell in love with Vietnamese food, Vietnamese culture, and I thought shop buying up was a way of reclaiming that and being really proud of how I grew up and where I grew up. So what are you making first? So a mushroom calamari. Yeah. So it's uh, enoki mushrooms and king oyster mushrooms. And I shred it up, toss it through flour, deep fry it, salt and pepper it, and it serves with like a sriracha mayo. It's mm. so yeah. vegan, yeah. I, I created this like a year ago, and every time I had dinner parties, I'd just make it, and there was just such a big... Um, like everyone loved it so I was like they're like you have to put on the menu Mm. yeah how do you come up with these things um just just like any art form I kind of just sit there and I'm like hey and you, I think I think what really helped me growing up Vietnamese and Australian I always saw two different sides of things or I'd just be like oh this and that that might go together or I was just always experimenting, always testing and stuff, and mm-hmm. dinner parties kind of gave me an outlet to to do it mm-hmm. because back then I didn't have a restaurant, so I would just do, invite 20 of my friends over, cook a five-course dinner, and, yeah, so a lot of the recipes from there had, are now here. <laughs> to me, this place is like a project where it's kind of me reclaiming my culture and sharing it with everyone else, like sharing the Vietnamese side and the Australian side and how that kind of intertwined and, like, affected my life. When I was growing up, my mom cooked a lot of Vietnamese food, but being an Australian-Vietnamese, she always incorporated kind of Western um, aspects to her dishes as well, like she'll make pasta with a bit of fish sauce or something, and I think that's really, like, impacted on how I cook now I cook a lot of I don't want to say fusion but like this second generation like merging of two cultures and yeah that's what we kind of want to create in this like takeaway shop
0: yeah and that's really interesting you know speaking about fusion do you feel that a lot of the time maybe people may come with Judgment and assumptions, because you know sometimes people see culture is the stagnant, unchanging thing, right? Um, and so sometimes people will be like, "That's not really authentic," you know. And and sometimes as people from certain cultures, you know, it feels like maybe you don't have that space to to experiment. Maybe like other people can. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely
1: feel that. And even though I grew up Vietnamese, I feel. Sometimes I feel like I'm culturally appropriating on, like, Vietnamese food. I, like, I don't have the permission to cook these things. But on my last few journeys to Vietnam, I've noticed that there's this creativity where they just merge everything. Like, they, they work with what they have on hand, like, and it's, to them, it's not cultural appropriation. It's just, like creating this kind of this new thing um well there's definitely a lot of um like companies and like big big named um restaurants that are taking a lot of southeast asian cuisines and twisting it and selling it for like 30 dollars like like a dish or something and in a way I at the start I wanted to do that because I was like someone as someone who's Vietnamese it's just like why can't a white person do it and I can't do it kind of thing but what fundamentally what I also wanted to do was um, provide accessible food like it's weird because you you go to like Fitz uh, not Fitzroy sorry uh, Victoria Street in Richmond and if a, fur, a bowl of fur on that street is $15. It's like, that's so expensive, but someone will happily pay $30 for a bowl of fur somewhere in a boutique store in Flinders Lane. Like, it's, it's that whole juxtaposition thing, it's crazy. Mm. Yeah. Women on the line. Like, I spent the last two, three years for as long as I could cook just wanting to feed people because I think food should be accessible. Um the end goal for this place, even though i 'm trying to juggle all these other things, is to turn it into a social enterprise so like because I am cooking Vietnamese food, I feel like I'm taking a part of this like culture and I want to um, give back somehow because I just i 'm cooking fur like i 'm taking all this knowledge and skills, but i 'm not really giving back in a way so Eventually, I want to, like, somehow build a social enterprise where I can give back. Well, I was really lucky. I grew up in Footscray, and back in, like, the early 2000s, it was, like, still a really big Vietnamese um, community there, so 90% of the kids at my school were Vietnamese or Chinese, so they, we could bring our fried rice and our dumplings to school, or anything and like everyone was cool with it everyone like I never felt ashamed of the food there were a few times when I bought like dried octopus to school and that was a bad idea but um yeah like it's I, I think I personally have been really lucky to being able to be proud and share like my food and my culture with everyone growing up
0: mm. you know I guess you're a Some distance away from Footscray, some distance away from, I guess, the hubs where Vietnamese food can mostly be found. What has it been like?
1: I think everyone's very supportive and encouraging of what, like, uh, I want to do. When I was working at other places, um, Vietnamese places, like, I had a lot of difficult customers who would be like, that's not authentic Vietnamese, blah, blah, blah. But when people come in, the first thing I explain to them is like, I'm not trying to be your average Vietnamese joint. I'm not trying to be better than them. I'm not. I'm just trying to be me in this in this kind of community. So everyone's been really nice, um, and everyone's been like keen to just try everything, which has been really nice. Mm. I think because the food. I've made it relatively cheap like very cheap for what Brunswick is I think that has enticed some people because Brunswick especially on the strip has a lot of like cafes and great cafes and everything but it's also very inaccessible like so that's why a lot of people come here and they're like it's like $6.50 for like a, a bread roll and a bun me and that keeps that's like filling. I think when they meet me, they see how raggedy I am, and it it, it all makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> so when I was doing all these like dinner parties before I opened the shop, I I made all these like sharing dishes for people to pick up because I really believe in communal dining. Um, and every time, like when you go to a restaurant and then you have a friend that's gluten free or vegan, it's very like, we exclude them because they're just having their own meal, whereas that's one of the reasons that pushed me to create vegetarian, vegan, gluten-free meals that are just as good or sometimes even better than the meat options. Mm. So it's because with vegan and gluten-free, everyone can eat it, whereas meat, not everyone can eat it. So it just makes sense for to
0: open it up. That that communal spirit is, is really also central to how Vietnamese people come together and eat as well. And veganism isn't that far removed from Vietnamese food and culture. Yeah,
1: Well, a majority of people in Vietnam are, like, still Buddhists. Mm -hmm. Um, And veganism is still a really big thing there. So a lot of people are like, oh, Vietnamese vegan, that's that's not a thing. But it it is a very big thing. If you go to Vietnam and you see the word J, like C-H-A-Y every like street you'll find it and it's vegan like mock meats. it's like it's amazing it's a it's a whole i think we should treat it as a like a whole new
0: cuisine if that makes sense mm. for our listeners anybody who's listening in where can they go to find out more information and connect with shop banya uh so we're only on facebook at the moment
1: so it's bowing up brunswick Bao Ngoc is actually spelled B A O N G O C, um, and our address is 387 Victoria Street, Brunswick.
0: On community radio around Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. You were just listening to Cindy, owner of Shop Banyak, a recently opened Vietnamese-Australian tuck shop in Melbourne. This week, we're looking into women and their connection to culture and food. Women on the line. <laughs> Oh Women on the Line. Women on the Line. Our final guest on Women on the Line is Saba Alameo, owner of Saba's Ethiopian Restaurant and Afro Hub, a social enterprise supporting Africans in Melbourne to flourish economically, artistically and socially. Let's hear Saba's story.
2: Um, my name is Saba Alameo. I am the owner of Saba's Ethiopian restaurant. I feel like what we do here is beyond food. I feel like it's also the sharing of the culture. In terms of Ethiopian food, um, my mother cooked it all the time, right? All the time. Even when she made, um, s- attempted to make Western food, she couldn't even help the influence that Ethiopian food had in it. You know. So um, when she makes bolognese for spaghetti, it's spicy as hell. And she puts Ethiopian chili in it and makes puts Ethiopian butter in it and just confuses it. So it comes out like this amazing tasting, very confused bolognese. Um, and just the way my mum cooked with vegetables was very different. So to me, like I can't, I can't envision food without Ethiopian food. It's For me, it's almost synonymous. In terms of school lunches I was I know it sounds weird to say but I was lucky enough that my mother didn't insist on packing me a traditional Ethiopian lunch right so I never had so I, I did the plain white bread with Nutella packet of chips and an apple to school every day so that I didn't really step away from that Um, and I don't think I would have ever imagined it like the shame and the embarrassment of stepping away from that would have not been possible because it's just you want to do what everybody else is doing but I do remember definitely encounters as a teenager. So, for example, Ethiopian cuisine uses a lot of onions, a lot of frankincense in our houses and stuff. And I was just like, my clothes stink. Can you stop cooking? And Because everything would smell like onion and spices. And, and kids at school would be like, hang on, why do you smell funny? And you're like, oh, because my mother decided to cook again and stunk up everything. So that I definitely remember that connection to the hatred of the smell um, as a teenager and as a younger woman growing up. Um, and then a secondary basis as well is that I remember as well uh, I invited a white friend over to my house one day and my mother, in her attempt to make her feel comfortable, because even my mother, I guess, immediately knows, I guess, Maybe a white kid's not gonna be comfortable eating in Jeddah. So my mum made pasta, which wasn't rare necessarily, but it was made for her specifically, because I said she was coming over. Um and again she did have special bolognese. And my mom made sure it was not that not too spicy, but my poor friend to her pepper was spicy. So she was like, She goes, No, it's okay, I won't eat. But my mother was just like besides herself because she just couldn't have the concept of a child had come into her house at this point, well, like in year eight or nine, and she wasn't going to be able to feed them or she, she was like trying to work out all these different things she could possibly make and like it wasn't even spicy but the girl was like, no, I can't eat this, like it's too spicy and I was like, screw her, let her have bread. So I definitely, yeah, I don't think I, I consumed my cultural food in public arenas. Um, probably didn't consume much of my culture anyway in
0: public arenas, as much as avoidable. And now here you are in the public arena, uh, smack bang in the middle of Brunswick Street.
2: Yeah, that that took a... It takes a transition, doesn't it? I think there is this... Also, there's a... The, even racially, I feel like there is... I don't know, this, this may not be the experience for everybody. For me, personally, even racially, the experience of prejudice varies um, as you get older. So as you're younger, as a teenager, as a a young child growing up in Australia, you just wanted to kind of fool everybody into not noticing you were different Um, and you put in a lot of effort to make sure that was done. Uh, Unsuccessfully always, but you put in a lot of effort to make sure that was done. Um, As you get older, then your difference becomes, in certain circles, exotic, exciting. It's this it's that um and now sometimes it becomes the sign of um being liberal with a small l um it becomes a sign of showing diverse views so to be honest and to me i guess to a certain degree we capitalize on that that's because it becomes like a way of showing your sophistication or your open-mindedness is that you eat different culture the way that you show that you are Not a bigot is that you engage with people from different cultures. Whether that's superficial or deep, that's not here nor there, but that's just, it's become kind of a system of showing. So, and because I live in inner city Melbourne, um, I'm definitely, I guess, a part of that culture. Women on the line. Ethiopians might come in here and question um, certain levels of authenticity that they feel are not being replicated, right? But that's authentic to me, right? So that's how – so some people have questioned. They're like, oh, but it's not that spicy. And I'm like, Ethiopian food is not about the challenge to who can burn each other's tongues the best, you know, like – that's just not, that's just how my mom cooks, all right? That's how she used to cook it at home. This is how she cooks it here. If it's not to your level of spicy that your mother makes it, that's your mother's cooking. You open up a restaurant and you burn people's tongues. Like, you know, that's, that's your prerogative, right? Yeah. This is what we make and this is genuinely what I eat at home and this is what genuinely my mom makes. But also another aspect that happens is that Ethiopians sometimes might be like, because we make a cauliflower dish using Ethiopian spices, but it's never done like that. And it was my mum literally mucking around in the kitchen, and my mum makes jokes. She goes, I swear these Western people probably would muck around with this and create some kind of magical thing, huh? And she kind of mucked around with it, and we tasted it. I was like, it was good. And she's like, ooh, I'm like now a Western chef. And she made it. We all like it. We put it on the menu, and it's ours, like, you know. It says it. Like, my menu's... Honest in what it says, it says we made it up in the kitchen, and we decided we like it. So this is what's happening. One of my pet hates of my life is that expectation around price. There's this expectation that Ethiopian food should be dirt cheap, right? I would challenge that and say I don't understand why it should be dirt cheap. We import our chili all the way across the seas. Our chickpea, like for our shiro dish, comes all the way over the seas. Teff is like at minimum $10 a kilo. That's what we use to make it. The labour associated, my slow-cooked chicken, cost, it takes us about six and a half hours minimum to make. Our slow-cooked goats costs us that much. Your, I feel like when people expect it to be cheap, they're making a cultural decision of why it's supposed to be cheap. And there's also an additional decision of what you're deciding is I guess flair around cuisine and it's about you know I'm not knocking this but this is just not what we do but it doesn't mean we're any lesser we don't make foam avocado right so uh, people to a certain degree expect that French style of cuisine dining for it to cost money but it still takes us effort there's still balancing of flavors that are happening there. There is importing of spices. There is when Mama makes the spice butter, she makes it here. It takes her time. She combines like 15 different spices to make it. Why are you telling me those 15 different spices
0: shouldn't cost? They cost money. None of them come in for free, right? Yes, definitely. And money talks. Uh, The other side of this, uh, for me, is the appropriation of food. In the Ethiopian context, there's currently a Dutch company which has the patent rights over the grain teff. For people who are listening in at home, teff is the main ingredient in injera bread. Uh, Teff is also a grain that is native to Ethiopia. So what this Dutch company is doing now is saying that only they have the right to sell TEF and TEF products in key European markets, which, of course, Ethiopia now is going, what there. So, um, you know, when we talk about appropriation, there's, there's a lot of levels to it. Anyways, what do you think about appropriation in the context of food?
2: In terms of cultural appropriation, um, I find that I guess it's not for... Ever, but I find that Ethiopian cuisine is kind of difficult f- for appropriators to appropriate, right? It's kind of Hallelujah, finicky. Thank God. <laughs> yes, yes. It's kind of finicky because people ask me, Oh, can you teach us how to make injera? And I'm like, I don't know. Sometimes if you put a liter of water, it works. Sometimes you need six, right? Like, it just, it's very responsive, and there's a lot of kind of um intuition and a lot of like looking at it and um sometimes like she's like yeah a little bit this much and she goes but it depends sometimes you know you need more the weather the temperaments uh, uh, a lot of things impact what it is so it makes it really hard to appropriate
0: appropriation from my perspective is you know like you know people people can do it and that sort of thing but you as a as a black woman people will be like you're charging how much other people sometimes when they appropriate can get away with pricing things at a certain level mm-hmm. um and, and and you know, you worked in sort of TEF import and export and so the thing that's also happening in terms of 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 this, you know, cultural appropriation is that they really are trying to muscle Ethiopia, the country, out of the market of its own cultural heritage. And and, and that is that is wrong. Uh so the history around
2: TEF was that TEF actually uh Authentically or originally only grows in Ethiopia. And it's only in the last, uh, I think it was about 15 to 20 years in which it was exported out. The Ethiopian government actually had an embargo, embargo and it was illegal to export TEF until about a year ago or two years ago, it might have been, but very recent. So about 15 years ago or around there so don't judge me on the timeline exactly but it would be no more than two decades ago um it was illegally exported by the europeans um, the europeans being the netherlands were actually netherlands a german and also a american firm illegally exported it out right uh so there's a questions there in terms of that um in terms of appropriation what we can charge for something or what other people are allowed to charge for something. A very clear example is the Ethiopian crosses. I'm not sure if you've seen them. Mm -hmm. Um metal made crosses, yeah. There's a really um I don't know if I want to say night, but there's a there's a boutique that sells them in the Fitzroy area. Should name unnameless. Um that sells them at we sell them at Afro Hub at like thirty dollars or thirty five dollars, I think it is. They sell them at $180. Right. But anything, if, uh, whereas if you even check out our reviews um, on Google, anything like that, there is no negative service review or negative taste review. But there has been a few um, cost concern reviews. And one of the things that I say is when people say it, you can, when it comes to the dining cuisine in general, hell yeah, you can make it cheaper at home. Like, the whole point of the dining experience is not just the food that gets served on your plate. It's the whole experience. We are preparing it for you. You are sitting. Like, there is a reason why you are choosing to sit on a Brunswick Street restaurant strip and not go, choosing to go to Outer west 10, 15 Ks further out to eat, right? And we charge for that premium because we get charged to serve you with that premium. They should be comparing us to what other Brunswick Street restaurants are charging, but they don't seem to do that.
0: Well, thank you so much for speaking with us on Women on the Line, Saba. Um, just quickly for our listeners, though, where can they go uh, to find out more about Saba's Ethiopian restaurant, as well as Afro Hub, which is a social enterprise supporting Africans in Melbourne to flourish economically, artistically, and socially?
2: Uh, we are available on both the social media platforms Facebook and Instagram and just googling Saba's Ethiopian restaurant and uh, Afro Hub should give you all the links if we've done our SEO right. I think we have. We should pop up hopefully. Women's on the line.
0: <laughs> oh, Women on the line. Women on the line. <laughs> <laughs> And that was our final guest, Saba Alameo, owner of Saba's Ethiopian restaurant and Afro Hub, a social enterprise supporting Africans in Melbourne flourish economically, artistically, and socially. And that's all for Women on the Line today. Women on the Line is a community radio national women's current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. We greatly appreciate financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show, so send us an email to womenontheline at gmail.com or phone 3CR on 03-9419-8377. Women on the Line programs can be downloaded from our website, www.3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. The theme music for Women on the Line is Slideshow at Free University by Le Tigre. I'm Hope Matumbu and I hope you can tune in next time.